so the challenges of like having to actually talk about it. Yeah, I totally blanked for a second there. I'm gonna <laughs> grab a caramel and sugar fuel my brain a little bit. All right. Um, yeah. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Control conversations with video game developers. Uh, today, I am lucky enough to be in San Francisco, talking to Jonathan Blow. That is in- indeed the case. <laughs> Confirmed. Yes. We're both in this room. Exclusive. At the same time. Man, just hot scoops from square one. Uh, yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm at John's office, uh, where he and his team are working on The Witness. Um, and of course, John worked on uh, was the creator of Braid before that. Uh, that came out. To wild acclaim in what two thousand eight? Yeah, yeah. Um, and and so yeah, you know, I I'm a thanks for chatting with me. Sure, thanks thing. for coming, um, coming by. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so yeah, I, you know, I want to talk about your games. You know, what you've released, what you're working on now, but also something that I think. I mean, maybe maybe this is just my perception, but I feel like for a lot of people, like what you are up to before you became the face of Braid is quite obscure or unknown, you know, like, because, yeah. because you're, I mean, you are, uh, I don't know what, in your forties. Yes. Yeah. Um, I just turned 42. Okay. Yeah. So, so like, you know, you, you made Braid when you were, you know, some years into your career, it wasn't like you were whatever straight out of college or something, but also you just sort of, at least I think from my perception, just kind of like appeared, <laughs> you know? Um, so like, how did you... How did you get started in being involved with, with making video games in the first place? Well, it depends on if you count as a hobbyist or professionally. Well, I mean, you're a, you're a programmer by trade yeah. originally, right? So did you like get a CS degree traditionally? Or? I was in school for CS, uh, major in computer science, like minor in English creative writing, and I dropped out before I finished either of those. Okay. I was almost done with CS. I could have finished in one more semester, but I just couldn't handle school anymore. Where did you go to school? There, Berkeley. Oh, okay. University of California, Berkeley. Are you from the Bay Area originally? I'm from Southern California. Okay. Yeah, but you've been here for a while. You know, so. you get when, when from wherever in California you are, right? Like all the schools, the state schools give you cheap tuition, right? You know? Which back then actually was affordable. Like now, colleges are crazy expensive. Even if you're in state for like a UC Yeah, school. I don't know how people do it now. It's I guess they all get loans, right? <laughs> That's the thing. Um, yeah. So. So what? What did you drop out for? Was it, you just didn't want to be in school anymore, or was it you went to do something? I was specific? really depressed about being in school. I didn't like it. No, not sure. I didn't have a good time. Um, which, and we can touch on this later, but it's actually not that different from certain working situations I would get myself into. Like, I, I seem to have a personality where um, part of me wants to be doing the thing that seems like the absolute most important thing for me to be doing. And if I'm not doing that, then um, then I'm certainly not happy, right? right. And, yeah. and can get depressed and whatever. And so college was sort of like a holding 
pattern sort of, you know, I was going there. It was good that I went there, especially in the beginning, because I'd done, um, I'll backtrack in a little bit and, and fill this in, but, you know, in, in high school and before that, I'd learned programming, and I could program better than any of my friends and stuff. I could do stuff in basic and assembly language, um, but uh, there's a difference between that and knowing computer science, right? Sure. And I mean, so I'll take your word for it. Being a non-technical is, person, yeah. it sounds like a true statement. Um, but over like the first two, two and a half years I was at Berkeley, I learned what the spirit of computer science is, uh, which is a really good thing to know. And you can probably learn that yourself. You don't have to go to school, especially now that there's the internet. Yeah. But it's actually kind of hard to learn that yourself. I mean, like, what it, like when you when you think of that concept, like yeah. what is that dividing line? I mean, it doesn't. You have to give me a dissertation on it. But like, is it more like the philosophy of how you interact with the computer through code? Well, or? there's oh, you know, I can mention one or two things, but it's actually really, it's really involved. It's it's mm-hmm. it's kind of subtle actually but okay so so at, at the most basic level what makes computer science a science right yeah um, is that it actually is about certain properties of the universe apparently right so if you want if you want to think about how hard is it to compute something right like if I want to know you know, I don't know. Like if I want to, if I want to search for something, and, and these are the properties of the kind of things I'm searching for, and here's how many there are. You know, there's bounds on how long that takes, given you know how many resources you spend and, and things like that, right? And um, there's a whole very specific discipline about knowing all the bounds on all these algorithms, right? Mm-hmm. And about how expensive they are. Um, that I actually was never that motivated to get that far into, but that's sort of really the the sciencey part. Yeah. Um, okay. But but actually, most of it, most of what gets called computer science is really engineering, which is fine too. And I'm not I'm not knocking that. I actually lean more toward the engineering side. Actually. Um, I mean, is it the is it the case that what would be termed engineering is the more practical skill side of of the knowledge of what you do with with programming, or would that not be? Yeah, okay. yeah, for sure. Um, but also, because like practical at a deeper level, right? So, so when I was in high school and grade school before that, I could write program, I could sort of write an assembly language and like make some stuff happen. But the computer itself was kind of a black box, right? right. And like you go to school and you get serious about it, and you're like, okay. I understand what's happening between memory and the processor and the bus and the disk and like, you know, I declare some variables in C and I see in my head how they're laid out in memory and I see when I do this instruction to fetch this value, like what that's going to touch, right? Yeah. And and once you understand that stuff, um, you just become a much better programmer, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, so, I imagine. So I think that's, I think that's true with so many disciplines where it's like, yeah, you can see deep enough just to make something happen in a, yeah. almost like, almost like superstitious or naive way. You know, it's like, you know, you know the pieces and, but then the structure of the thing underlying it can give you much more insight into what else you might be able to do. Yeah. And then the other thing you get from school, uh, is 
a broad exposure, at least at least at Berkeley, you got a broad exposure to different languages. So, mm. you know, you would show up at the school and the first language you would learn uh, is a programming language called Scheme, which is based on Lisp. Okay. Uh, and, and the course that was being taught at Berkeley was basically a duplicate of one that was being taught at MIT. And sort of nobody else did it this way. Um, but, you know, a lot of schools think of themselves as they're teaching you a trade skill when you show up. So, yeah. like... And in fact, that that faction of thought sort of won over even at Berkeley, and they don't teach Scheme anymore. But mm-hmm. but it'll be like, oh, let's teach you as your introductory language, like something like you know Java or something that's going to get used out in the real world. Right. And this is the opposite of that. This was like we're going to teach you a language that you probably won't use in a job, but that is really good at illustrating basic concepts and at being simple, right? And also at well, and, and also that, you know, because you're going to learn these other languages later, by the time you learn two or three of these, you've seen a broad spectrum of things, right? Yeah, yeah. Some things really sucked about Scheme, like debugging it was terrible. But debugging everything was terrible in, like, the late 80s, early 90s. Um, I get the impression it's still not always the best part of a programmer's job. It's, it's not always the best, but it's so much better now. It's, yeah. not, it's not funny. So, so you were, yeah, you were learning all that stuff, but, like, school wasn't the place for you. I didn't love it. So then did you, did you go into like software development stuff? Yeah. I mean, you know, um, there's always at any school like that, that has, you know, a big, a relatively well regarded computer science program. There's always people like leaving, like starting stuff. So I kind of got involved with a business related software company Mm -hmm. for, you know, less than a year. I didn't like it. Um, it was really flaky company. Like the guy who ran it was, uh, it became clear that I wanted to get out of there. <laughs> sure. Um, so shortly after that, uh, you know, I, I bailed and I went. Um, I was a contractor at Silicon Graphics, which was once a well-regarded software company yeah. and hardware company. Yeah, right? they made uh, workstations, Silicon Graphics workstations. Yeah, indeed. And um, those were the shiny workstations that everyone wanted to use when I was in college, right? Yeah. Um, so I went there, and they were doing a project that involved. You know, trying to do a set-top box for Japan, and they were working with Time Warner on that, and they wanted some game stuff on there, and they needed someone to port Doom and Doom Two to this set-top box. You know, so I did that. Yeah, and that was that was a tidbit that I know I had heard. You might have mentioned it in one of your GDC yeah. talks or something. That sounds like like that's hilarious. That must have been like a, a really interesting experience, but that's also such an esoteric like. You know, platform and... Yeah, it was interesting, but it also, like, man, it, it... You can look at that and think it's good experience, but I also feel like it was kind of a waste of time. Um, it's at least kind of a good story. It's a good story. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I got There's that. that. No, I mean, one, one day, sort of one anecdote from this is... You know, one day I was just kind of starting to get the port together, and it had been... Because I'd never done anything on this scale before, and I'd been working on it for a little while. I don't even remember how long, but at least weeks, right? Yeah. And I sort of had something where, you know, there was you know no sound yet, and I it had it running in a window, and it was just really, um, you could, you know, the, the graphics were rendering in the wrong format and stuff. But if you really squinted. You could sort of tell that something like Doom was actually running, yeah. right? And it just was displaying really poorly and all that. Um, 
and I had no experience. I didn't do any graphic stuff in, in college or anything, you know, so I did more general stuff. So, um, that was the first time I'd done something like that. And then, you know, all these like upper level people were walking around like, Oh, the, the people from Japan are visiting on Monday. What can we show them? And one of them came up and said, how far are you along on this? And I was like, I showed him this. And he's like, oh, we can't show them that, right? So I stayed, I, I came to work both days over the weekend and had it running perfectly on Monday. <laughs> and they showed it and like to some Japanese guy, probably it was like, oh, it looks like a video game. Right, right. right. But I mean, you know, that, like that, it, I, I imagine at least for the people you were working with, that was a you know, yeah. clear demonstration of character. You know, like yeah. you had the pride in actually so wanting to be able to show the thing, right? Trying it's... to play Doom on a TV remote is terrible. <laughs> I've, well, but I've, I had it working. And I've done it in on airplanes. They'll have like yeah. Doom with like some faux Super Nintendo controller that comes out of the arm. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't even ever turn those on because they're always so terrible. I tried it once just to be like, how the hell terrible is this going to be? And it was unplayable, and then I stopped. I mean, but, now that portable devices exist, there's yeah. basically no reason for those. I, I assume that they are being completely phased out. Yeah. Um, anyway, so, so, yeah, so yeah. that was... So the reason I say that was kind of a waste of time is it... Like, any kind of large company like that... Um, is there's a lot of things that usually happen, right? First of all, it's generally an inefficient structure. Um, you know, like if you're in a large company and you're young and you're trying to learn, you're s like how fast you can learn is sort of limited by the environment you're in, right? Yeah. Um, whereas afterward, so right after this, I, I ended up starting a game company with a friend of mine from college. Mm. And it was just us at the beginning, and then you know we brought someone in, a third person, uh, to do art stuff. Hmm. And that was um, like what in the mid nineties, nineteen ninety six. Okay. Um, and in that kind of environment, you're only limited by yourself. So if you're a motivated person, you can do things very quickly, and you can learn very quickly, and you, you can basically just crank, right? Yeah. So that was much more valuable, actually, um, than all the you know than, than either of the previous two jobs there. Sure. Um, so what? So what? So what was it like starting a small game company in the in the mid nineties? Like, what it was the do? worst possible time to start a game company? <laughs> it, it doesn't. I mean, that was also, I guess, somewhere around when like Valve started or something. But you guys weren't starting with like millions of dollars. You were no. starting with two dudes in an apartment. Right? Yeah, so. and and I think Valve started. 94, 95? A little before us. Sure. Right? But they were also starting at a relatively hard time. So, yeah. you know, let's not knock that. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. but they had more resources, right? So the, the thing that made it the hardest possible time is that games had started to become 3D, right? So so Quake was out, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, Quake was in beta release when we started, and it released, like, in summer 96, if I remember correctly. Okay. Right? So everyone was trying to do Quake-like things. And... There's a big difference between putting sprites on a screen in 2D and like 3D rendering at back then a good frame rate was like 20 frames per second or more on a 486 66 megahertz. Yeah. You didn't have graphics cards, so you had to learn all these algorithms about yeah. like how do I rasterize a triangle? How do I do that like pixel accurately so that the textures don't drift and yeah. stuff and it's just a tremendous learning curve. Um, and you guys were trying to do 3D stuff. Yeah, we did. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. we totally did. Um, we just... Our game was not that accessible. 
Um, we used every key on the keyboard twice. <laughs> so it was kind of... I guess that's one definition that. of not that accessible. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, by modern standards, it's completely unplayable. Yeah. But, but back then... Was it released? Can people play this thing? Can you find evidence I, I don't on think the you internet? can play it anymore. So for a while, you know, the first couple of releases, there's a company called Total Entertainment Network, right? Which, which actually, yeah, ten. we worked with, like, our project managers at 10, the, the publisher for our first thing, ended up being the founders of PopCap oh, wow. later on and making bazillions of dollars. Because 10, 10, wasn't 10 like a, it was almost like a web portal-ish thing? It was like GameSpy, sort of? Yeah, so before everyone had, like, real internet, right? You would have dial-up modems and you would call stuff. And a lot of dial-up modems are slow. So there were a couple of companies, 10 was one of them, where they had the idea, like, oh, you subscribe to our service, and we give you extra fast connectivity somehow. I don't know how. <laughs> but, you know, and then you can play action games, and you pay, like, a monthly subscription fee, like right. HBO or something. Right, yeah, yeah. That was the idea. And it only, you know, after even a couple of years, it became clear that that was not really going to be a business model that existed. Right. And so they went out of business or something. Um, so was your was a game that you made like only available through their service? It was at first, and then when they shut down, um, we brought it to another. So there was this company called Interactive Magic that used mm -hmm. to do like flight sims and stuff, and then they had their own portal, and so we brought it there with some modifications. And then eventually, after a while, when we shut the company down, um, my old business partner, a guy named Bernie, um, just ran it for free on the web mm. for a while. Well, I mean, what it, like I'm intrigued. What is this? What is the name of the uh, game? What it went it? through several names. We had multiple versions and stuff, but yeah. I think the last one that you could have played for free on the internet was called Wolfram Two. Okay. Um, that almost sounds weirdly familiar. I may have actually like yeah. Something well, to my memory. Back it's a it's a so it's a it's a three D it's a team on team multiplayer only as if 3D game wasn't hard enough <laughs> you also pulled because I, like, I really like the game like NetTrack back in college which yeah. was a team on team you could think of it as like Star Trek football or something right? <laughs> where you're flying spaceships around. It's a, it was a brilliant multiplayer game for the friends the Star Trek football is good yeah I mean that's itself, that's what it context. was yeah um I, I don't know how it holds up now because I haven't played it in a long time, yeah. but we wanted to do something a little like that. So it was a team-on-team -team thing where you come in the world and you're driving a tank around and, mm. you know, you're building bases and stuff and you're trying oh. to kill all the enemy bases, right? right? It was that kind of thing. But so then you also had, like, an uplink where, you know, one person could be the commander and control spaceships. And the spaceships, you know, you wanted to put them kind of forward so they could drop your cargo forward and stuff mm -hmm. but then it you know you had to defend it it was easier to defend if it was in your backfield yeah. but then there was a spaceship metagame where the this this space overhead was like a grid right and so your commander was sort of playing a game with the enemy commander about okay if i get two spaceships adjacent to one spaceship then we're firing on it and it'll die after a few minutes if you don't save it yeah. and so the guys on the ground can like you know, for the spaceships to move, you have to be powering the square from the ground wow. to like clear the field, yeah. right? So it's actually a very intricate game that yeah. had a lot, a lot of interesting things about it. Yeah, no, it sounds um, like crazy, like multiple levels. Had, was, was it? But it, but it was too complicated to understand. Were there enough players that like separate people were controlling stuff on the ground and in space, or was the same person splitting attention between? The ground no, game, so the so if the game was full, it was uh, thirty-two players probably, oh, okay. sixteen on a team. Which, by the way, was not easy over ninety-six hundred baud modems. <laughs> we worked hard to make that happen. Yeah, um, it sounds it sounds a little bit like the three D remake of Battlezone that came out in the. Yeah, I mean that was a bit later. 
yeah. Um, and I don't think that had multiplayer, did it? It had one on one or something. Yeah, I don't remember. But anyway, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it sounds like anyway. Like it a was crazy a super game. like any one of those things that right. I mentioned was technically challenging. Yeah, and we did all of them. Uh, so that was a really good learning experience. We went broke, um, and I was burned out for several years after that from working hard. Um, but I, you know, that's how I became a good programmer, really. Um, awesome. I mean, that's, yeah, that is, yeah, that does sound like a, a trial by fire. I guess it was. It was, it was a hard time. There were some other game companies with smart people in them that also that were even doing less ambitious stuff like that and still didn't succeed yeah. so um, I think, that, I they, think they, uh, you know the game Netstorm yeah that came out mm-hmm. around that same time with like you know Zach Simpson and Art Min and all these guys really smart guys like worked on that game and it just like it, it was again mainly multiplayer and yeah. it was a little too early to really do something that was mainly multiplayer yeah and, I think that, like uh, Harvey Smith had a similar story where yeah before working on Deus Ex he was the lead on a game called Fireteam which was like a 4v4 yeah. multiplayer only yeah. thing in the like mid 90s and yeah. yeah it was just like there wasn't enough infrastructure, right? Like, there weren't enough players to support it. The I mean, design even wasn't ha- far enough, you know? It's like, how do you give people... Like, people didn't pay money for things on the internet in 1996. <laughs> that just wasn't a thing. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. I remember, yes, I remember being on the internet in the late 90s and being like, you put your credit card in? <laughs> yeah. You know, like, it was, it was a yeah. bold new... Even even toward the first dot-com crash, which is ultimately what killed our first company, because we started doing this thing where it's like, hey, there's all these tech companies springing up, and they all need websites, so we'll have some people doing websites, and we'll use that revenue to fund longer-term game development. Yeah. And then when all those companies went out of business, we had to shut down because you know we, our whole business model yeah. was yanked from no longer had customers on yeah. The on web. the website, so, yeah. yeah. Well, so like, just to—I mean, this may be the, the mo- this may be the most straightforward answer in the world, but like, you know, you, you came from uh, you know CS background, and you did some work in like business stuff and whatnot. But obviously, you did a lot of work and put yourself probably in more difficult situations to like do game dev stuff, even from the very beginning when you were like leaving college. So, did, are are you like? What would you say your motivation was early? Was it just like, you know, like like so many game developers are just so psyched about games, you just want to make games because games are cool, or was it more like the... Because I know that, that also, having talked to programmers, especially in, like, AAA, it's like, the reason you have a job making a game when you could be getting paid twice as much to program a database is just because, like, interesting real-time 3D graphics programming problems and AI and stuff that you don't get to do elsewhere. So, like, I mean, what, what drew you into making It was the really? first one, really, because we didn't know how hard games were, right, when yeah. we started. Yeah, and yeah. It, nobody did. They were just starting to get hard. So, you know, that year, either 96 or 97, it's probably 97, um, but, you know, one of, one of those two years, Mike Abrash was at the Game Developers Conference, yeah. and giving sort of a, now that they had figured out everything behind Quake, you know, giving a rundown of it, of, of it, and and he was like, so, you know, if you want to do something like this, a, you know, a competitive project on this scale, I'd say about a year and a half is the minimum schedule, right? And a wave of shock went through the audience. Everyone couldn't believe that they were supposed to work on a game for a year and a half, right? <laughs> which sounds like a joke today. Right. 
right? But that it was like serious. It was people like, like people were like, "Is he serious? <laughs> Eighteen months?" Well, I think it, I think it probably would have been similar to like at that time, or even fucking five, ten years later. That you know, being like, "Oh, to make a game this competitive, you're probably going to need a team of 200, 300 people." You know, yeah. like that's just standard now if you're making GTA or Assassin's Creed or something. But then it's like. What would all those people be doing? Dude, there yeah. was a time, speaking of Game Developers Conference, there was a time when someone from EA was showing up. I forget. Was it around, like, Battle for Middle Earth time? I don't remember. I'm, I might be getting my games confused. But it was in conjunction with one of these games. And the guy gave this speech, and the whole gist of the speech was, look, you need 100 people to make one of these games now, and EA is the only people who can afford to do that, so everyone else might as well go home. <laughs> right? It's like a hundred people now. That's you know Ubisoft laughs at that. You yeah. Know, like what they can't do anything with a hundred people. Yeah. It's like that's quaint. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what? So what games were your? What what games were your big like inspirations? Like what what did you want to make games that were like? Like what did you play when you were growing up that made you want to make? Games? I don't know. Like probably Infocom text adventures mm-hmm. were the biggest thing. I never really made one of those. Yeah. Those those seem pretty different from anything that you've worked on. Yeah, actually, but um, I but mean, that's maybe the witness is going to be the closest thing. Yeah, it's like, so far. From I know it you is. Can't but, even but like just it. as far as like everything else seems even further. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I digress. Yeah, um, I don't know. You know, I, I guess played... that you were into like like NetHack and like Roguelikes and shit like that. A little bit. I did some of that in college. Um, I liked Sokoban in college. Mm. Um, but I like NetTrack. That was that yeah. was my favorite game in college. Played a lot of that. Many, many when I should have been, you know, studying or being productive. Well, because you're you're like a you're a competitive gaming dude. I, I just you I I don't know. Actually, I think I don't know if you talked about it publicly or if it was just yeah. when we were chatting one time. But like, you played a fuck ton of like Counter Strike and were yeah. really good at it. I was really good at Counter Strike. I mean, for an amateur player, right? I couldn't have been a pro player or right, something. Right, but, right, right. But that um, said, like, it's I I I find that interesting, just in the sense of. Again, very different, I think, from what I probably associate with, you know, what you make and therefore extrapolate what your interests would be. It's like, <laughs> oh, Counter-Strike and, like, competitive Star Trek football and stuff. You yeah, know, I, I don't know. Something changed there. But but my first game that I was telling you about was like that, right? It right, was like yes. Hover tanks with, like, lots of different weapons, right. you know, tactics, strategy, like, all in a big burrito. So, um... <laughs> Something Delicious something changed, gamer, yeah. right? At some point, I decided I wanted to make different stuff. Yeah. So, you know, among the many other things that happened between that first company and when I started doing Braid, one of the things was, um, you know, around, around 2002, I think. Mm-hmm. Whatever, whatever year that, that really good eclipse was in Africa, which I think was 2002. I was flying back from Africa because hmm. we went to see this eclipse. Yeah. It's a whole story of its own. <laughs> um, I mean, it sounds fascinating, but... And, I, you know, I, I get inspired sometimes when I travel. Because, you know, yeah. you're relaxed, you're not thinking about the... And your subconscious can go to work. And right. I was coming back, and I was like, you know, I want to do this thing that facilitates, um, you know, gameplay experimentation and shows the work of people who are doing crazy stuff. And I, like, took pages and pages of notes. I, like, wrote a little sort of a manifesto about it that I never, like, cleaned up and put anyway yeah, yeah. Um, but so that's when I started this experimental gameplay workshop and I got you know Chris Hecker and Doug Church and Robin Hunnicky to help on that and yeah. we did that so now Robin and Daniel Benmergy are doing it um, but 
you know, we, we four did it for probably eight years in a row. And that was all about just looking around over the course of the year to find the most interesting, like out of the mainstream kind of games that people were doing. Yeah. Even if they weren't totally successful games, if, if the idea if at the heart of it was interesting and different and came to some conclusion, it would be, you know, a good thing to talk about. Yeah. And so, um, at some point in there, like in 06 or something, you showed Braid in that, right? Yeah, I actually showed Braid three years in a row, which is a little <laughs> bit bad for him, but you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, I had new things to show. Yeah. Well, I, I remember like the first time that I encountered you or Braid was my first GDC I went to was 2006, and I went to the Experimental Gameplay Sessions, and weirdly, uh, I don't know, sort of weirdly, you actually... You showed Braid stuff, and it was all programmer art. Yeah. And you actually showed and explained the ending the story ending. twist that yes. goes backwards and everything. And, yes. and so I had that weird feeling when I played Braid that I've normally only had when I play games that I worked on, where it's just like I can't see that moment as an outsider. Like, I, I have no Sorry. idea what the impact is. No, and that's, I, I, like, that's fine. I'm yeah. whatever. It's I have a differently interesting experience, you know, which is like... That's that thing he talked about, and it's in the game, and it's finished, and clearly for other people, it, like, they extrapolated the intended meaning that you had explained at that thing years prior, and it worked for them and everything, but it was just, it was interesting for, for me. To, yeah, in to retrospect, you know, when I look at something like that, like, I was really excited about that, and I was like, oh, I want to show this and talk about it, but really, I don't think that was necessary, because, like, a lot more people played the game than we're at in that room and if you're a designer and you play the game you probably pick up on that and know so it's an interesting I'm kind of down on conferences a little bit these days Mm -hmm. like I don't think I'm going to go to the GDC this year you're not even going to go no I mean I live here right so I might just meet up with people in town and stuff right right everybody's coming to your house so you can hang out with them yeah (laughs) yeah but I kind of don't you know, I don't get that much from most of the lectures. Yeah. Um, if I miss something, it's online on video. And yeah. if I'm going to give a lecture, which I, you know, I've gone through phases where I go and give a lot of speeches. That's another yeah. thing I was doing, like, all in that period before Braid even. Right. Um, when I do that, I find it useful, first of all, because um, it's kind of how I figure out what I actually think about subjects, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> If having to verbalize it helps me um, realize where I'm at. Um, So it's a useful process for me, but I don't need a conference to do that, right? Like you can, like I could, like those design meetings we were doing a couple years ago, I could get one of those together and like, hey, I just want to do a speech and have a real audience and we're just going to record it and put it on the web. But, you know, hey, let's do this thing. And it it doesn't cost me $2,500 to attend that or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I find that at the very least, having concrete external deadlines is helpful for me to actually like get that kind of work done. You know, for somebody else to be saying, "Here's the date you need to have your your stuff like presentable by." And I mean, you know, if you give yourself that deadline, and you're like, "We're going to do this thing in a month," and now you've got a month to do it for yeah. your own thing, and you're not going to move it. Like, sure, but but yeah, like because that does seem like from. So, like, in between the point of your first company shutting down and then starting work on Braid, and you worked on Braid for, like, a few years. Three and a half, yeah. So, like, there wasn't, it wasn't, like, a gap from 
the end of the 90s to like 2008. It was like 2004 or five or, or something. Um, but uh, <clears throat> in between, yeah, you were you were doing talks and were you like, really, the impression I get is you were doing like contracting stuff. Like I was programs. doing contracting stuff on a number of different triple uh, A ish games. So yeah. I worked on uh, Oddworld Munch's Odyssey. <laughs> A launch title um, for the Xbox One, I think. Xbox One, one, right, or whatever. The original Xbox. The original Xbox. You, know, you want to hear the? You want to hear the? So I had this realization. Yeah. Sorry, when I was talking to my friends earlier while I was here, yeah. I realized the reason they don't give a shit about the Xbox One, the new one versus right. the old one, is the majority of their target audience is not old enough to, to remember, remember having yeah. an Xbox One. That's uh, possible. <laughs> it's possible. I don't it's know. Dark, that whole thing. We yeah. I don't. No, it's a weird thing. It's it's a big weird thing. Okay, so, so, so I worked yeah, on that. Yeah. I worked on Deus Ex Two and Thief Three on a little bit on the tech team there. Um, I worked on a few other things. Uh, I didn't really do that great of a job on any of those um, relative to how what I should have done. Right? Um, Were you just like not feeling motivated? Or yeah, it, it was the same thing that that would happen in school. Like at the beginning, I'd be super motivated. Is it different in every situation, right? So actually, at, at the Oddworld thing, I showed up the first day, and it, I showed up, like, Friday night, right? So Saturday morning, I go in the office, and of course, there's no one there. And I'm like, oh, I'll just get started, because I'm, I'm hyped. I want to get down, sit down. And, and, like, they had this thing there where they didn't let people mess with their own PCs. So the PCs were all, like, locked down mm-hmm. and stuff. And so I had this fire to get started working on the game. I'm like, fuck it. I'm going to break into my own PC <laughs> so I can, like, get the game on it and get going. And I spent all weekend trying to do that, like, eight or ten hours each day. <laughs> and at the end of it, I, like, give up. And then Monday, I'm, like, really tired and beat down. And, like, uh, it's, like, the worst. And that's a weird attitude. Like, in a lot of ways, that company treated its employees very well. But, like, not... Especially for a programmer, like if you can't, if you're not being trusted to use your own computer properly, yeah, it's weird. It's really weird. I mean, that must have been an interesting part of being of like doing contracting is you essentially, yeah, got to experience the working environment of like a number of different productions. Yeah, in a short yeah. Of time. But but actually, also the other thing, it, it's all these things are useful. You know, even though I didn't do that great of a job on these things. Um, they were useful. So, in, in, in terms of figuring out what I think about production processes and, and all that. Sure. So, so, you know, when I was working on Deus Ex 2 on this tech team, um, I sort of came in, you know, as a contractor to help out. And I wasn't even getting paid hardly anything because I didn't want that. I was just like, hey, I'll just hang out and work on this. Hmm. But because of that, I also was not in a decision-making position at all, which is really demoralizing when you don't think that um, good decisions are being made yeah, necessarily. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah sure. Um, and, and the other thing about that was that was back in the days when a lot of games, you know, you change something and you hit compile and 45 minutes later you get to run the game and then 20 minutes later you're in the game and get to test your thing. Yeah. And I get super demoralized in that kind of situation. Mm-hmm. And so everything we do here... You know, if you compile the witness from scratch, um, it takes, I measured it just the other day, it takes like 45 seconds or something. The whole thing, clean build, which is, not incremental. Which is insane. I um, mean, well, it could be much faster if we actually worked on it, but, you know, 
We, we make, but... but at, the, at the point where, you, where the whole game is 45 seconds, probably the work to make it 35 seconds is not really worth Although it. Although it does, it, it helps. I mean, 10 seconds it really helps. add up over time, but yeah. like, compared to a lot of times to build the whole game is hours, even now, like, it's... Yeah, I mean, really, there's some kind of cliff around two minutes, right? Mm. Like, there's a cliff before where, okay, I'm hitting compile and I'm still here because it's just going to take a second, right? Yeah. Or I'm hitting compile and now I'm going to get a coffee. As right. soon as you go get a coffee, yep. you're not, your flow is broken yeah. and all that stuff. And the two minutes turns into ten minutes because it doesn't matter two minutes anymore. You come yeah. back to your desk whenever, yeah. Yeah. So that, that actually, um, uh, yeah, that was a... The, the Ion Storm thing, which was a company doing Deus Ex 2 and Thief 3, that was really frustrating for a lot of reasons. It was a hard environment to deal with. Um, mm-hmm. But right before I left there, I did. I actually started doing better. Like I, I, you know, I found some tasks that I could do that were more feasible, and so I did something that seemed hard in like a couple days. And I was like, "All right, cool, peace out. I'm out of here." Sure. Um, but yeah, that was you know, it was easy to sort of be depressed at that time because I was like look I'm supposedly this really smart person who's a really good programmer and all this and yet I keep doing this thing over and over where I go to a place and I'll start doing I'll be really smart at the beginning and then I'll just sort of be in this demoralization spiral until things get really bad right and now I have a clear picture of that and I realize that what was going on is that that's just my mind saying, hey, you shouldn't be here. You know, you should be doing something else. Sure. Yeah. This is not the right way for your life to go, right? And it makes your life go a different way by kicking you out of those situations, right? Yeah, because you make yourself incapable of being in that situation. Like, you, yes. you, you might motivate other people to eject you from that situation or, you know, for yourself. Or just to eject yourself or whatever. Untenable. Yeah. Yeah. But at that time, I didn't understand that. Yeah. And so it stopped extra, you know. Yeah. Um, but eventually, so eventually then, um, I was back working on Braid and, you know, I started that game around the beginning of 2004. Okay. Although actually I had a, I had a previous project to finish up. That one actually went pretty well too. So right before Braid, there was a research project that I did with a guy named Otman Binsock, who's now doing a thing at Valve. Um, and we basically pitched this thing. So IBM... The cell processor, which was in the PlayStation 3, was like a joint project between IBM, uh, Toshiba, I think, and Sony, right? Mm-hmm. I think it was Toshiba. Yeah. Anyway, so before the PS3 was out, right, so, so all of these different partners had plans for what they wanted to do with this massively revolutionary chip. And IBM was like, we can build servers because that's what we know how to do. And we'll just slot a bunch of these in there and you'll just have a crap load of compute power. But they didn't know who to sell that to, yeah. right? And one of the possible markets is video games. And, you know, I happened to be introduced to people there at the right time. So um, I went there and pitched them like, okay, we're going to do a proof of concept for an online game that's about giant robots, right? Like crushing, attacking a town, but they're physically locomoting, right? Like so they're like hexapods and stuff. Yeah. And because they're physically locomoting, you fight them by like shooting limbs off the giant robot and it'll like fall and things like that. Yeah. And because it's a multiplayer game, right, 
everyone needs to see the same world consistently, which means you can't do physics locally on the client because everyone will get different results. Yeah. So to do that kind of game with coherency, the server has to be running all the physics for all this stuff at once. And that has to be a beefy server. So like I came up with this thing, who knows if it would be a kind of game that really exists, but it was at least a case of like, look, this is a thing that uh, couldn't exist without Big Iron like running it. Okay. You know, and, and so, and we built that. Like, and again, we were crazy productive for like a year and we built a game. Crazy you know, multiplayer physics robot game. Multiplayer physics robot game. Actually, yeah. Um, and, and it was extra crazy because like Otman, so I was doing the client and the, like the graphics and the gameplay code and mm-hmm. Otman did all the physics. Like he wrote a physics engine and uh, made it run, you know, with the inner loops in, you know, assembly language on a chip that was barely existing you know we did all that in a year it was crazy at the end of it though our report was this chip is not good for video games (laughs) (laughs) and they didn't like that yeah like our our conclusion was we would have rather been doing this on intel chips by a lot you know and they they didn't like that conclusion so i think it got buried sadly so it was never a public thing it was just never a public thing we actually um it was better. So the first E3... So we finished this like a year before the E3 when games for the PS3 were first shown, right? Okay. yeah. And what we had a year before that was better than some stuff that was on the E3 show floor. It was crazy, right? right? We had such a head start. But like we brought it to EA, for example, and showed it to a bunch of people at EA and they were like, yeah, we're not impressed. Well, totally. And then, you know, a year later, they've got nothing, right? Right. <laughs> but it's good though it's good that I didn't rat hole on a, a game about space marines with jetpacks you had jetpacks so you could like fly up and like run like stand the on the robots. robots yeah sounds like I mean experientially it sounds like fun I would, I would run on top of a robot I don't know yeah I, I mean it was right? cool the thing is because it was a small team thing it didn't quite have that it didn't have that level of polish that right. makes things really fun that you yeah. get when you just put all that last 80% of the work in right yeah it was only the first eighty percent, right? Um, but it was still it was really cool, and and so we did that, and then I actually had to finish that up at the beginning of two thousand four, but then around April two thousand four, I started working on Braid, and by December two thousand four, I basically finished the game gameplay wise. So that was like eight months. So you so pretty intensive. I think the the thing that people remember about Braid, uh, I think. Wait, I'm saying two thousand four. That's not right. Two thousand six. I thought you said it took like Wait, three and a half years. 2005. If it came out in 2008 and it took three and a half years, then eight, seven, six, yeah, 2005. I always get confused about the years. Some yeah, year in right. there. Let's, like, let's it might say have been 2005, probably. Let's yeah. go with probably. I mean, you showed you showed that sequence. From it would have been 05, right? So it's not been graded at GDC 06 in March. So you must have been working on the game for a while. Yeah, yeah that, but not yeah, like yeah. two years. Yeah. yeah. So okay. Um, so like. I, I think that again, I'm extrapolating like public perception, but I think the thing that people mostly remember about Braid mechanically is the first world, which is time rewind. You know, like just straight up, you can rewind and go back. Yeah. But then you had additional worlds where there was like the time bubble, and there was stuff that only moved when you like the stuff that only moved when you moved. Um, yeah. Was all of that stuff like in and playable in that that first year of development? All those different mechanics. 
I believe they were. Yeah. Um, the reason is, um, like, I remember in December of that year was when I did the ending. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure the ending came after all that other stuff. You kind of built it in order as far as, like... Roughly. Mm-hmm. Like, there, you know, at first I didn't know, like, how many worlds are there going to be and whatever. And at some point, like, in November, I was like, I want this game to be tractable because I want to finish it, right? Yeah. So... In addition to doing all that contracting stuff and all those intermediate years, I also spent a lot of time like working on my own independent projects. They would be mostly technically driven projects, though. Like I'm going to do a really technically impressive thing and build a game around it, you know, because I had a history yeah. as a programmer, and that's sure. that's the way programmers think, you know, that's the way cowboy programmers want to live their life. Is you know, I have a cool feature I can implement, and then I'll figure out how to use that in a fun way. Yeah, but feature is a little too small of a word, right? It's yeah. like, I'm going to do something that nobody else in the world knows how to do, and it's going to be really impressive, and that's going to help me make a game, right? Sure. Um, but because I'm very ambitious, you know, all the things I picked during that period were too hard for me to do. Okay. And you could kind of get them working, but, you know, games need to be super robust, like, and, and often these things are not that robust. So, right. um, again, that was a super good learning experience, but no, like, products that people could play came out of it. Right. And so the you know, one of the mission statements when I started Grade was look, I've done all this 3D stuff, hardcore, you know, software, assembly language, whatever. I'm gonna now do a 2D game, because that'll minimize the amount of time that I spend programming and I'll be able to focus on design. Yeah. Um so that's uh, I mean, did you find that was the case? In it was the practice? case, and yet even so, I barely was able to finish Braid. Like, I was I was at my wit's end at the end of the project, you know? I mean, because like, from, from the outside, it, it does, like... I don't know. On the one hand, as a developer, I can kind of picture the answer to this, but on the other hand, it still seems amorphous as to, like, if you had the game playable to end, end-to-end in a year, yeah. that include, like... The, did the puzzles mostly stay? Was like the content there? Like well, they they got revised a lot over the subsequent years, okay. and and you know the feel of the game was not super good and all yeah, that, and the, sure. you know we didn't have there wasn't even parallax scrolling at that time or anything, mm-hmm. whereas the final right. game had all sorts of stuff. But yeah. the the basics, if you want to say what the basics of the game are, like you have a hub world, you go out to these other worlds, and those worlds have different mechanics of what's happening. All that was in there in the first yeah. year, yeah. first eight months, really. And so then from that point forward, yeah, you were, I mean, in a, in a word, making it viable from, like, making the mechanics feel better and making the presentation yeah. be more attractive. And then, like, working with, like, David Hellman and musicians and stuff. Yeah, like that. once once David came on, you know, I ended up doing a lot of programming to support what he was Like doing. the graphical stuff. That, yeah. Because, okay, so David Hellman was, am I right, the, the only artist that did the art in the... In the game? Not really. Okay. No. no. I mean, so. Um, I mean, he defined like the look of the game and did. A yeah, lot of the art, yeah. Right. So before he was, well, I forget exactly what order things happened in, but Edmund McMillan actually did the animations for the characters and did oh, character okay. design on them, right? I see. And so for a long time, we had Edmund's characters and David's backdrops, yeah. and what happened at the end was I was looking at it and I was just like, okay, this was the way that we could get the work done, but man. They don't mesh that well. Yeah. So I had to call Edmund up and say, 
I hate to say this, but we're going to have to have David paint over your stuff to have the style of match. Um, and then, you know, David also made some in-between frames because it, it turned out, oh, we, we want the animation to be at a higher frame rate. So yeah. he basically took Edmund's animation stuff that he did and, you know, Adapted. massaged it. Okay. Um, but yeah, so, so I mean, yeah, you worked with a small number of artists yeah. over a significant amount of time and, yeah, put a lot of work into supporting them and, yeah, making the, the game feel more playable. And, like, I assume also at the end doing stuff to make it uh, comply with Microsoft's requirements for Xbox. Oh, yeah, that was a great deal of work right there. I, sure. I imagine so, especially in 2008 where they were, like, Braid was one of, I feel like, the early games in a transitional point from like, oh, Microsoft Xbox Live Arcade called that because they were going to sell you fucking Joust. Yes. You know, and went from, from that to we're going to have original content that creators are making for this platform, you know? Yeah. And so there was probably a lot of poorly supported stuff that you had to do to, to be on that platform at that oh, time. Yeah. No, know. it was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they've made it better this time, but I doubt it. You know. Yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, because like there's they, at least in that generation, they had all those goofy requirements. They're like, you have to have leaderboards, and you have to. You no, know, it's way like okay. There's all that stuff is bad, right? But there's even worse stuff. So there's all these consoles in general where it's like unplug the memory card while you're playing. Yeah. Well, well, there's all this stuff. So I don't give a crap about achievements at all, right? Sure. There's all this stuff in there. Not even just about supporting achievements, but in making sure that achievements are secure so that there's no way you can load your friend's save game and get their achievements, right? <laughs> so there's all sorts of crazy stuff that people could try to do and like swap users on a different menu. And, and in theory, the operating system should have just handled all that. Like, you shouldn't have to care about that as a right. game, actually, right? But instead, they offloaded. They didn't build it that way, yeah. and then they put that onus on all the developers. Yeah. It's so bad. So here's how bad it is, right? So, you know, on Xbox Live, you have a unique identifier for your account. It's like a big, big number, right? Yeah. It's a standard thing to do. Everyone has their own big number. Sure. Actually, there's two different big numbers based on whether you're locally logged in or connected to the network. And that makes it really confusing, first of all. Yeah. But actually, all the, all the, um, you know, all the code that you call in the operating system to make things happen doesn't use that number. It uses the user index, which is zero to three based on what controller people are using. So when you say, load the save game file for this person, you, you say for user zero, which by the way, can flip out beneath your program at the wrong time. Yeah. So it's actually, it's actually, I believe, completely impossible to do what they want to, to make it secure. It's just that, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah, you, like, yes. if they had just retooled their API to use the, the big unique number, all that stuff would have just worked. But yeah. instead, every developer has to do, you know, three or four weeks of work. Yeah. I mean, I would hope that, that it's one of those things where I would hope that in the current there would be some lessons learned going into the next generation. You would think, but the thing is, like, I have no idea. there are some, actually. You know, I got my PS4, yeah. ran Resident on it. First thing it did, it popped up a calibration screen. Like, let's, you know, let's make sure this is sized for your TV, yeah. right? Previous consoles didn't do that. Oh, so that was, um, that, that's like... That's that was like, something I ranted at about a few months ago. Right. Like, 
because one of the one of the requirements that you always have to comply with is called title safe region, where it's like you're right. not allowed to draw important information on the outer ten percent of the screen, which makes games suck because then you have all these HUD elements and stuff, and they're like they way towards the middle, attached to the edges of the you screen. You know, and you've yet. got all this wasted space. Yeah. Right? Um, so, so the calibration screen you saw was actually it's like built an into the PS4 yeah. level thing. That's cool. So I'm hoping that that means you don't have to do title safe region on the PS4, but I don't actually I haven't looked yeah. at the certain requirements. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so so yeah um, so you yeah you're working on on Braid for a long time yeah like what was I mean I get the I get the feeling that I know some of this I guess but um, I mean what like and maybe you've answered this too many times but like what was the what was the inspiration for the game like what was the thing that motivated what made what made it interesting enough for you to like commit those years of your life to actually finish it well you know at, at first it was an experiment right. And at that point, it wasn't uh, clearly the thing for me to do, right? Um, but the w- one of the germs of the experiment was, you know, some friends of mine were talking on a mailing list, small mailing list with like 20 or 30 people on it. And there was a discussion about rewind in games, among other things, like, you know, because Prince of Persia's Hands of Time had been out for a while at that right. point, and... Which had like limited rewind. Yeah, you would like, like it had hundred. It had like one hundred percent fidelity rewind. You rewind everything in the game when you were rewinding it. It was just you had to use. Yeah, I actually, I don't really believe it was hundred percent fidelity. I think they faked a lot of things. Um, but from, from the players and it, all the important it seemed stuff, reasonable. Like yeah. Right? Um, yeah, and they didn't have a lot of stuff that would be hard to do that with. Like I didn't have physics objects. I don't think they. Backwards I don't think like they that. did sound backwards or anything. Mm. Um, but anyway, anyway yeah, yeah. Yeah. you know, my big issue with that was, you know, I, I played that game and I thought, oh, that's a really great idea. That's, you know, do some rewind. That's cool. It wasn't even the first game to do rewind. Like there was, um, I forget the name of this game now. Ugh. Anyway, there was a first person shooter, mildly RPG-ish game where you played like an angel or something. You know? Oh, I know what you mean. Um... No, it wasn't Messiah because that was a no, no, other game. It was, um, yeah, it was that one that that was, yeah, like nineteen ninety six and like kind of Quake one two ish kind of engine. I don't think it was shit. that early. I don't know. I don't I mean, remember. It might, it might have been like ninety eight, but I know what you mean. You play an archangel and you had a bunch of powers. And yeah, and one of the powers you could like rewind. Okay. Yeah. Yes. So so anyway, rewind had been around a little bit, um, and what I what I personally felt was that it like did, designers didn't see the potential in it, right? Because, like, what just to take Prince of Persia as the as the scapegoat here, right? They took a system that was already complicated and cumbersome, a base system, which is this thing about I'm playing a game, I try to do some challenges, the game kills me when I fail the challenges, and if I die a few times, it's game over, and then I go to the loading screen and I load and I wait two minutes while it loads, and then I'm back where I was and I try to do the same thing and I die, and you know that is it's an annoying thing to happen interactively while you're playing and it's a lot of it is like vestiges from arcade games right. you know yeah um like if you just started from scratch and you were building a fantasy adventure game modeled after like the movies or something your main character doesn't die and come back in a movie like why would you do that in a game it doesn't make sense right yeah. the reason it makes sense is historical mostly so um you 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 could imagine starting with a different set of assumptions that would mean that the failure state didn't 
result in your character dying, but like some other consequences, which is things that games, you know, start to play with sometimes. Yeah. Anyway, um, so I felt like they took this thing that could have been a beautiful simplification on top of that ugliness, that traditional ugliness, but they just bolted it in there as an extra layer and thus made it uglier, right? So now it's like, oh, if you, you know, you screw up, now you can rewind, but only if you have sand... Right. And when you run out of sand, then you die, yeah. and then you reload. So we've made this more complicated, and in some sense, it makes the sand not matter, because it's only doing... It's temporarily keeping you from having to go to a load screen, as opposed to being... Yeah, it just, it didn't, it wasn't that interesting, ultimately, but it was potentially interesting. Yeah. Um, but, but so there was this discussion on the list, and uh, my friend Casey, who often has opinions that people would consider extremist he was just like look there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to rewind any game just like a vcr or whatever you just hit the button and go backwards and yeah. that's just how it works and of course someone else on the list was saying well no you can't do that because then you completely get rid of consequence and there was this discussion about it right like well if if this cumbersome save load is the only thing giving you consequence you're really getting around the consequence by loading your save game anyway yeah and then it sucks if you forgot to save and all these things. I mean, we didn't have that much autosave back then, by right. the way, for anyone yeah. listening now. You had to manually save most yeah, the of the time. the F5 key. If that. Like, <laughs> yeah. sometimes you had to go into the menu and save <laughs> to know that. Anyway, there was this whole discussion, and everyone had different opinions. And, of course, people didn't really change each other's opinions that much. But no one ever, like, tried it. Yeah. And I was like, you know, what, what would it be like if I made a game about Rewind, right? That that was one of the ideas. Yeah. But, but that wasn't even the idea I started with to make Braid. That was just in the background. Like, I didn't then go off and say, okay, I'm going to make a rewind game. It was just like, okay, that's a thought. Yeah. Um, the actual thing I wanted to do, um, you know, I was on vacation in Thailand, and I was like, let me make a game, because again, I get inspired when I'm on vacation. I was like, let me make a game that's like uh, this book that I like a lot, that's called Invisible Cities. That it, you know, it's by Italo Calvino. It it has a structure where there's a bunch of little little vignettes, like three or four page. They're not even stories. They're like descriptions of a city that have a certain theme right. about them, right? And I thought that was a really beautiful book. Um, there, there's a book that was a follow up to that, uh, not a follow up, but um, an homage to that, mm-hmm. uh, called Einstein's Dreams, written by Alan Lightman, who's a physicist at MIT, right? And it was a similar structure. But Einstein's Dreams is about Albert Einstein, you know, going to sleep and thinking about different ways that the universe might work. Mm. Back when, you know, he's working by day as a patent clerk, he's not a famously known physicist yet. He's working on his theories and he's dreaming about the way things could be. Yeah. But again, it's it's in the format where there's a three or four page bit that assumes like, what if light is really slow and you could walk faster than it, you know, and, and here's how people would interact in that world, right? Yeah. Or whatever. And that was a really interesting idea. But it struck me that if you're going to do that, if you're going to do the physics version of like Invisible Cities, books are the wrong place to do it. Because in books, you could only... And the wrong place to do it is too strong, right? But it's not in the wheelhouse of books, right? Yeah, there is because, greater potential to actually demonstrate it in an interactive Yes, way. yes. Games are the place where you say, okay, what if light traveled really slow? Let's actually make it travel really slow and see what happens, right? Yeah. So when you're someone like Alan Lightman, 
you can kind of use your imagination to think of what's going to happen, but you're going to miss things. I know this for a fact, because when I go and do it in games, most of the interesting stuff is things I didn't think about a priori, right? right? Um, So I wanted to do that. I wanted, and my idea was, I want to take some of the weird stuff from quantum mechanics, right? About things not being definitely in a state, like they're, you know, they're in a superposition, or there's this interesting fact about how um, when you look at the laws of physics, even Newtonian physics, but quantum mechanics also, they appear to be time invariant. So like physics doesn't seem to know the difference between time running forward and time running backward. So it's like, how do you design a game where that's true? Um, there's this thing called um, um, the principle of least action, okay. which is one of the weirdest, well, it's, it's maybe not so weird once you understand it in a certain way, but it, it's one of the most interesting and possibly profound things in physics, which is that, you know, we, we think about physics as being essentially about cause and effect, like this, this, this billiard ball hit that one and knocked it over there and whatever, right? But when you look at any physical system, when you zoom out and look at it, if you look at, just imagine we're talking about the line of like where something went, like some, some, you know, you think about an asteroid in the solar system and it went this way and it got tugged on by this one and then it went that way and makes this crazy curve, right? Right. Gravitational pull on... Yeah. yeah sure. So when you zoom out and you look at the path of that asteroid, it's always the minimum energy way to get from its starting point to its ending point. Right. Which is crazy. It's like saying that whole path wasn't the result of any actions because it was the only thing that could have ever been, sort of, right? Yeah, like the, the, the idea that... You start getting it's, teleological yeah, a little bit. Because it's like it's it's the it's the optimal thing that could have happened, therefore it's the only thing that could have happened because only the optimal thing will ever happen. Like Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and that's you know, what, what we're saying now is an overly simplistic way to put it, right? But Yeah. I mean you know. from from my point of view I'm parroting back your simplification yes. of this yes. thing. But I mean that's it seems to make sense at least in that yeah. form as you're explaining. So anyway, you know, I had I had a bunch of ideas like that. Um and I've had, like, I've okay. had to systematize that stuff. I've had to make those into rules in a game world that you can then understand and yeah, yeah, react and, to. And, yeah. and so I was thinking about that stuff. And at first, the ideas about how to do that didn't seem to be that high quality. Like, they were interesting, but I didn't, wasn't loving them. And then I remembered the rewind thing. And I was like, okay, let me try the rewind thing. And um, that turned out to work really well. So within this first week that I was working on this game on vacation... I built the rewind. So first I built a basic platformer, right? And I built in rewind. And then um, I built in objects that were immune to rewind. And I think I might have even done, you know, the time tied to your position. Or that, that might have been the next week or okay. something, right? But in that first week to two weeks, I had a game that demonstrated a lot of what was interesting about the final game. And once I did that, I was like, you know, that's better than all these other ideas. So I'm just going to make this game about the rewind and seeing where the rewind goes. Yeah. So that, um, that to me is always a good sign. Like you start out with one thing that would be pretty good if you built that, but then you find a thing that's better. That's how you know you're really doing well. (laughs) 
Right. When you when you love the new thing enough to get rid of your old ideas and say this is better. Yeah. Right. Because the the thing. So let me let me sidetrack for a second. Right. Um. So another game company that people like a lot is Valve. Mm-hmm. Right. And Valve has a culture. So so what I do here. Um. What I was doing with Raid by de facto, because I was the only person working on it until Dave came on, and, and what I'm doing with The Witness now with a bigger team is sort of this, you know, designer, is sort of the benevolent dictator, right? Where, like, they're determining what the game is, right? People can have ideas about what to contribute with the game, and you need that, actually, to fill out a big game. Yeah. But, you know, it's my job to make sure that those work with the large vision. And if right. they don't, then I, I decide, I'm sorry, we can't do that, right? Or or we can do something like this, but we need to change it right. in this other way, right? Yeah. So Valve explicitly, and they've said this on a number of occasions, doesn't believe in that, right? Yeah. You know, they believe in just iterating on a product. They call their things products, which I don't really, I said product earlier <laughs> in a different way, but, um, you know, they, they believe that games get better, you know, the more people you have working on them. And when, you know, you have one person who's a designer trying to be the benevolent dictator, that'll ultimately go wrong, right? Because because that person is fallible. And in fact, all through games, you see people who were like that and did a shitty game and whatever, right? Maybe they did one good game and then they tried to do it again and... That's and couldn't do it or whatever, right? So so from one standpoint, what they're doing is, is totally rational and reasonable. Um, I don't like it because I believe that it puts the majority of interesting games outside the scope of what you can do, right? Because if you're going to actually be visionary and interesting, you have to be able to pursue something without having to politically convince 100 people that, that that's the right thing. Right. You have to, if it's really a new contribution, you have to show people why it's the right thing, yeah. right? And if it's going to be an expression, I, I don't know, the many games that I connect with strongly are clearly an expression of an individual's personal experience or interest or whatever in a way that is really hard when it's committee. When everything based. is, is vote, vote on what goes in the game, yeah. right? Which is but, not to but, checks and balances are bad, but like, a, you know, a, a, yes, I know what you mean. Yeah, so... But the thing that I realize now that at least helps you from turning into the crazy designer who sucks is this reality check of, is what I'm doing now better than my original idea, right? At some point, you give up the selfish ego part of the idea and you just say, I'm going to do the best thing. And it's probably not possible to do that completely, but you can do a pretty good job of it, right? And, and you know, Braid turned out that way. Um, and the witness is largely that way as well. Do like, you feel, is there someone? Is there anyone in your process that is like your go-to second opinion, like your filter sounding board? No, um, there probably could be in the future. Um, it takes a long time for people to get on the same page as me, right? Sure. So to even really understand what we're doing, um, I, yeah. Because I mean, coming from from where you're talking about, like yeah. on the one hand. When I've been working on stuff, you know, it's like, okay, I'm the writer, I take, and the designer, I, I take final responsibility for, like, whatever goes on screen, like, it's my fault, and therefore, you know, on, on some level, it's like, I'm that, you know, that filter you're talking about, where it's like, this is an idea that just won't fit with what we need to be doing, and this is, oh, how we could change it to be that, or whatever, but the other side of that for me is, um, you know, kind of a, um, a, a local maximum problem, you know, where it's like, 
I can go in a room and be like, I think I have found the best version of this that I can think of. And then my like story editor, creative partner, whatever at the studio is Carla. And I will bring that to her and either yeah. here's the thing that I legitimately think is the best and I'm confident in, or here's as far as I could get. And I don't know what the fuck I'm doing anymore. Yeah. And for someone like that to be able to say like, I don't think that's actually going to be good enough or well, that gives me an idea you wouldn't have had. Like, yeah. I think that's also very helpful. That kind of thing happens here, um, but there's there's not necessarily a main person. But it's more sure. like, you know, I'll be the way the game ends up working in terms of uh, the way the modelers and texturers work on it is people tend to own relatively large areas, right? It's a common way to structure it. Right. Um, you know, so so we have this big island, and there's you know eleven or twelve or fourteen. I don't know how many like areas on it, and then those are there's sort of a main person who's working on those most of the time. And so when I'm trying to design something that fits into an area, it's like I'll I'll be working with that person, and they'll have a problem, or I'll have a problem, and I'll I'll start talking to them, and I'll say like, here's generally an idea that I have that I would like to try and. Sometimes it just doesn't work out. Like sometimes the idea kind of sucks, right? Um, sometimes it's it's fine, and um, some sometimes sometimes the idea itself is not that good, but it leads to the other person thinking of something better, right? right? Like the, the, again, the the important part is to factor the ego part out of it and just say like, look. If I'm thinking of my own, where if you if you wanted to be the egotistical designer, that your brilliant ideas are always good, how do the brilliant ideas happen in the first place? Well, you start thinking about possibilities. It's not like magically the final idea just drops into your head all the time. Yeah. On rare occasions, that does happen for me. But often, I'm looking at a situation. I'm trying to figure out what's the best thing, right? Yeah. And I propose things to myself. And some of them I reject out of hand. Some of them I investigate a little bit, right? Yeah. Um, some of them I just say, oh, that, that's not the game that we're making. Some of them not, right? So, yeah. so in this kind of process, you're just opening that loop up and including another person in there. So there's nothing to be ashamed of in that, right? It's the same, it's the same process. It's just involving more people. Now, the problem, of course, is when it involves more people, it's much slower. Yeah. Uh, and well, I think also the point in that loop where you involve more people is important. You know, because I think yes. that I think that when you are saying, "I'm going to be the first line of defense to a design problem or what we're going to do with the story or whatever," then you, I think that if you, I think brainstorming is pretty bad. I think you know, if I don't like if brainstorming. Like, yeah, you're like, well, I know what the problem is. I haven't even thought about what a solution might be, but let's talk about that. I think that's going to fuck up your process and make it slower and worse in different, well, in ways that are specific to bringing additional people in at that point in the process versus. I've gotten as far as I think I can, and yeah. now and now having someone be able to react to that, I think, yeah. can be really valuable. Absolutely, yeah. And sometimes time is just useful, right? Like, yeah, we're stuck on this, but you know what? We don't need to solve it right now, so we'll come back to it later. And yeah. then later, you just know, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, sleeping on it, or yeah, yeah. getting out of your, your workspace. Or, yeah. That's that's an interesting big difference between this game and Braid because Braid was small enough that it didn't need that much of what we're talking about right now. Yeah. Um, but the witness is huge in comparison. There's there's just so much stuff that I can't hold it all in my own head. So, yeah. and and so the nature of problem solving becomes a little different, right? Yeah. So I mean, speaking of that, like you you finished Braid and yeah. it was really like well received, and you went on 
many platforms and it sold a lot of copies and yep. like you're employing a bunch of people now and like all that that kind of stuff right yes. so like what I mean what, one thing that I that, that I wonder is you know you, you have your first big independent project that 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 you ship and is like a, a noteworthy success and clearly whatever not to be too crass about it but you suddenly have a, a lot of money and then it seems like two decisions you could make as someone in that position are either yeah. well I will kind of do essentially the same scale of thing that I did before but try to do it differently and interestingly or you can say I'm now going to invest the majority or some large part of these resources I've just gained to do something that in scope is is significantly larger and it seems like you well, definitely I'm, went down the path of like I'm not going to make another 2D game that's interesting for different reasons it's like full 3D well there, there's, a, there's a third option right which was I want to do a 3D ambitious thing but not pay for it so I'm going to get funding from someone which I can do now that I have a reputation for sure. this previous game or you could also right. do the cheaper version where like on the witness you're you 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 guys are programming your own engine, right? Yeah. So you could have used like middleware or something, which yeah. I mean, I know which that, comes with I, the I know that you us. wouldn't want to as like your personality type, but it yeah. would just be a different way to like get into that experiential space with a lower faster upfront. and with yeah. a lower upfront. Thing. Yeah. yeah. So so what so what made you like what pulled you towards towards you know like going much bigger and having like a a, a company with many more people at it and all that? Well, it was really just this game right so even before Raid was done I started getting the ideas for this game and writing them down and yeah. you know I worked on it a bit during the time between when Raid was in the can so to speak and when it actually came out it was about a six week delay mm -hmm. um, so uh, you know and then and then after or that summer and, and later I would actually go over to Chris Hecker's house and we'd have little work parties and he was actually starting Spy Party at that time. Mm. And so we'd sort of show each other what we were doing and... You guys going to um, co-launch these games? Are they both finally going to come out? Yeah, that's kind of <laughs> Well, he's, he's actually got an open beta, right? So right, you, right. Can, you can play Spy Party at yeah. this point. Yeah, yeah. Um, your, your game is not really a... The way it's not, not open, open beta. Gamble. No. <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... What was I saying? Okay, we we were doing that, and yeah. so I, I put in a good three or four months on it, solid. Oh, sort of. I mean, I was burnt out from raids. Yeah, so it was like, like was that very soon? That, that was like that was like that right was after. With, okay. Yeah, I couldn't yeah. work on raid. I couldn't touch raid. Right. Like, oh my god. But just even diving back into real work on something that quickly. Yeah. Well, I also. I also was intensively kung fu training at the time, so that like ate the rest of my time. Have you done like martial arts and stuff? for a long time no I did it I did martial art or I started going to a kung fu school at the same time I started working on braid mm. and then I, I was doing that for a couple years two and a half years in a kind of a casual way the way most people do it yeah. which is you know a uh, couple days a week you go yeah. in for a couple hours do some stuff you learn your and, then, and then at some point they come along and say well you know why don't you come into our closed door training and you'll get like the serious training but by the way, it's much more of a commitment, right? Yeah. Um, you end up training like 15 hours a week or something. Um, that's even low, but that's probably what the average was yeah. for me. Um, so it's sort of like a part-time job at that point. Yeah. That's, um, that's a significant So I, I, was doing, I was doing that in 2007 and 2008. Um, 
So when Braid shipped, I was actually in the most intensive part of that. Hmm. That was interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, what did, like, what did, was it, was that something that you felt like you, you but, uh, well, but, but, but the reason I brought that up, yeah, yeah. Uh, before we go on, yeah, is, sure. um, you know, most people, when they have a successful game that makes money and stuff, they'll, uh, okay, now I can just go travel the world or just relax and leave and... I couldn't do that because I was in this intensive part-time oh, job. I see. <laughs> so, and, and and that was going to be going for like another year and a half at least. Like yeah. it was a multi-year commitment. So I was like, well, <laughs> why didn't I start another game while I'm here? Right. Yeah. Was it was it just something you were interested in? Because it was. I mean, it's a very different discipline to what you are normally doing on a computer and stuff. Or? Yeah. Um. And I just. I don't know, I just really liked it. I didn't yeah. like it that much at first, but I tend to not give up on things. And once you get kind of good at it, it's just really interesting. Mm. Um, it puts you... So, you know, I grew up as a very nerdy nerd, right? Actually, I. it, it turns out, looking at old pictures of me and stuff, I always had a relatively physical body type. But I never understood that. Yeah. I always thought of myself as like super scrawny nerd, and everyone around you thinks of you the way you think of you usually, right? Like you right. just radiate that. Yeah. And so you know, I got picked on in school all the time, and, so, and I was used to like being that person who like wouldn't, if if you know, if somebody started a fight with you, you just kind of give up or run away. Like, what do you do, right? Yeah. Um, and so that's fine. But then there's always some existential worry, like what if I had to protect someone or something really bad happens, I am helpless in that situation, yeah. right? A lot of people are in that category of people. And in fact, in San Francisco, for example, one day, I was on a bus, and it wouldn't have been wise to intervene even if I knew how to fight, but like, you know, four guys just suddenly grab a guy on the bus and drag him off and just start kicking the shit out of him in the street. Jesus. Like, right there, you know, and the, the bus driver's yelling at him. There's like 15 other people on the bus. Nobody stops this from happening yeah. or anything. And it's like, what is going on? This is crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, the interesting thing about it, one of the most motivated, there's several things that are really good, right? But one, the, the, the end part of this anecdote is just that it moves you into a different class of person where, like, anytime you fight, it's dangerous, right? So yeah. even if you know how to fight, you could easily lose or get hurt or whatever. Yeah. But it, it at least moves you into a different class of person where it's like, you who are trying to intimidate me, your plan is not going to go the way that you thought it was. I'm at least going to give you some trouble. And that, yeah. it's a tremendous existential relief, right? Hmm. It's, it's also a good way to get yourself in trouble if you take it too seriously, but... Right. Um, but you at least have, you have that knowledge. It's like, I have this ability to act differently in a situation that yeah. I would not have had before. Which, yeah. yeah. And then, um, and, you know, and, and that fate... Like, I haven't done Kung Fu training for a while because I got in a car accident, so that ability oh. fades over time. Mm. So now if I got in a fight, I don't know what would happen. <laughs> but it, it would be better than, than when I was in high school or something. Yeah. But, but the other part about it is, you know, it just, it just gives you better physical abilities. So, like, I like going out dancing a lot and mm. stuff. And you just have way better balance and... Coordination. You know, especially from doing uh, Tai Chi, um, you, 
you learn slow muscle strength and coordination. So, you know, most people, if you start out and you just have your hand here, right, and you're going to move it really slowly, most people, their hand will, like, shake mm. because they, they, they don't know how to move slowly. Mm. Um, in fact, mine is not that good right now. But, um, you know, that kind of thing, you can suddenly, your body can do it, right? Um, and it's nice. Yeah. It feels good, right? And, and you're being in shape and you're getting skills, so... Yeah. Yeah. No, it seems like a I good, recommend it. Yeah, it, sounds, it seems like a good counterpoint to a lifestyle that is not... That is not very attuned to the state of your body, I think, in a lot of... You know, like, it's yeah. like your, your, your consciousness of your physical form is just not important. You know, yeah. it's like when you're like, I'm, my consciousness is in this machine that... That's what's important. It's like shifting your focus of awareness of like what you are by doing this very physical thing seems like it's mentally it's, valuable. It's definitely healthy. It definitely, yeah, mentally valuable. I think is actually an important point. Um, and just associated with it, like the the meditation practices that you pick up and stuff are. If you want to hold yourself together through a long indie development when you're getting no external validation or whatever, yeah. that stuff really helps a lot. Like people just don't even understand how much it helps. Yeah. Um, it's yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I would have finished braid if I wasn't doing kung fu. Even though you would think that it would hurt because I was spending all this time not working on the game. Yeah. Probably helped. Yeah, well cuz I mean it's like you're not going to spend every hour of your available hours working on the thing. Anyway, it and even if you are you're wasting a lot of that. <laughs> so, like, being yeah. able to have a thing that you have to spend some of those hours that wouldn't be devoted to it productively anyway, it's like doing something that's good for you seems yeah. like a really valuable yeah. thing. Totally. So, so yeah, um, so Braid came out, and then you pretty much you started working on, on The Witness not not too long at all after that. Yeah, so, so I was doing these work parties with Chris, yeah. and then after a while, it became clear to me, like, oh, wow, this is going to be a really big and ambitious game and yeah. I shouldn't do it because it's just, it's, it's going to take forever. Yeah. And, and well, what we have now is even bigger by far than what I thought, but even what I thought it was going to be just seemed too big. Yeah. Um, but I was still in that mental model. I was assuming that I was going to do it like grade where like I was the only programmer and I was going to design it and do all these things. Um, but then after Braid continued to be financially successful, I yeah. realized, like, oh, I have enough money, I can hire people, and we can make this a thing. So, you know, before I realized that, I spent about six months on other prototypes and stuff. Yeah. Um, but after the end of that, or, or, or you know, in, in October 2009, I said, okay, let's, let's start a company, right, for real, and I started hiring people and all that good stuff. Yeah, and I assume that was. So here's something that some something that I've thought about, something that that struck me that I noticed, and you know, it's just strange uh, when you are doing a project that has some amount of scale, but also very few people working on it, is you end up having to do and think about so many different kinds of things on any given day. Because, like, even when we were just talking about, you know, your inspirations um, for Braid from, like, Einstein's dreams, you know, and having to, like, understand and think interestingly about physics conceptually and, and how that would work as an interactive thing, like, then you have to go and, like, program a platformer, you know, and 
understand what you need to do for cert for Xbox and tell press about it and like because you know, like I was you know I was working on Gone Home at some point I realized like what am I doing today I bothered a record label about licensing a song I rewrote audio diaries I laid out some of the level and like lit it and tomorrow I'm gonna go like do voice direction of like an act it's just like what the fuck <laughs> like you know having having to have like all of that that practical info in your head of like oh I got a bug report because my scripting is broken when the player crouches in this one location and I'm thinking about how to express who this character is through writing and you know like have you found I assume you've had moments of that where it's like just having to think about it and do all the aspects of it is like I don't know yeah crazy <laughs> it's, it's a little bit crazy sometimes <laughs> there are parts of that that I like though and parts of it that I don't like right so right. the parts I don't really want to grow this company much but you know if the witness is financially successful enough that it makes sense to keep the company going right which is probably a higher threshold for me than for a lot of people but you know um, it's a higher threshold for you I know, this project than the last one yeah I mean, I mean I'll, I'll explain that because it's relevant to what we're saying actually which yeah. is I don't I'm not here to run a game company right I'm here to make specific games so um, I don't want to end up in one of those situations that we've often seen happen where you'll have kind of like a subsistence game company where they're kind of making it from year to year just barely and they're pitching projects like trying to get money or whatever like that I think is a tremendously bad environment in which to try to make games. So if it came to that, I'd probably go back to doing games as an individual again, and then maybe, you know, look for people to help separately. Yeah. Um, I hope it doesn't come to that, right? Because it's, it's actually, it's really difficult to find talented people to help you make a game. And once, once you've got that, it's, it's a shame to lose it. Right. Yeah. Um, but so, so the things, that I don't particularly like doing are things like I need to make sure that everyone has health insurance and that that bill is getting paid right. or um, I need to just even scheduling meetings that I need to be in like I don't I, I don't know I don't like that stuff yeah um, I'm totally fine with talking to the press about the game I'm totally fine with designing I'm totally fine with um, high-level art direction even and stuff like that. Um, but at some point, I'm doing a little too much. So all the, all the businessy things, I would like to offload. Like business and office management. Yeah. Like, I'd hire someone, if I can find someone who's good at that. But all the other stuff, I really enjoy doing. And, you know, before we started up the recording, you mentioned it as being like, weirdly multi multidisciplinary I think was the phrase and it's like yes that's true especially it's kind of clearly true when you when you look at things like voice acting versus like fixing the scripting sort of but at the same time like those traditional roles they are arbitrary constructs to begin with right like, even the idea that you can have a designer who designs a game without programming, whatever video games are in 50 or 100 years, that might not even be a thing. Like, maybe all designers are programmers. Maybe they're not, like, as serious of programmers as, as someone else, but, you know, it's already starting to happen. Like, you know, I was just visiting a, a professor who teaches a game design school, uh, 
who teaches at a game design school in New York and teaches at NYU. And one of the first things he said was like, yeah, I don't believe you should call yourself a designer if you can't program, right? Now that's, that's a relatively strong statement that a lot of people would disagree with, but sure. that sentiment is, is out there, right? And, and that's already a, a combination of things that you would consider different disciplines. And there's all sorts of, if that doesn't make sense to anyone listening to this, there's all sorts of justifications behind that, like, you know, a designer needs to design an inherently procedural system most of the time. If you're making, like, an adventure game that's all if statements, it's not the same, but, but most games... Is like a system producing things that happen, and yeah. you need to at least be able to think about that system in a systemic way. Right. And if you can do that, actually, you can program even if you don't realize it, even you if you don't know a program to be able to translate that into what happens. On yes, the screen, yeah. because because you'll end up writing notes like that anyway. You'll be like, oh, when when the enemy is in his just hit state, then. You know, if you do something else at that time, then this happens, right? right? That's a program. Right. It's just in English. Yeah. So, so, and then there's other things too, though. Like, okay, when I'm designing, um, so direction of voice acting, which which I'm going to be doing a little later. I haven't done. We've done temp voice for this game. We haven't done final voice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's not like you can voice direct in a vacuum, right? Like, there's an integrity of the whole work that has to be held, right? And the more of an art game or the more of a personal game it is, the more important it is to hold that integrity, right? So, when you make voice direction a separate job, then you make extra work of interfacing with that and making sure the integrity is held, and maybe you can't even ever get quite as close, right? Yeah. So, in principle, and then that raises an interesting question, like, suppose there was someone who was an amazing voice director, right, much better than you knew you could be, right, you have no experience at that, or little, I guess you probably had some from... I voice directed for Bioshock DLC and stuff, but But you know... Imagine there was someone who did it, like, for 10 or 15 years. And when you you meet someone like that, they have a lot of learned skill, like a craft that, yeah, Yeah. it's not something you just are born with. But when you talk to that person about what you're trying to do on a feeling kind of a level yeah you don't ever quite connect with them and they don't quite get it it's a they get it a little bit but not as far right it's at least a like generation problem like a copy of a copy kind of like it's an interpretation of your signal right in that kind of a case it's probably better for you to do it i think the thing that i mean the thing that i found and this is sorry i know you're using this as an example the practical thing i found is having you be the one who's doing it but having that very experienced, like, technically competent, uh, or I should say, you know, skilled, talented voice director there to, like, help you, I think that's... that's That is very valuable. Because whenever I've done voice direction stuff, I've always been, like, the one on the mic talking to the the talent and saying, like, in this scene, what, you know, I want, I need more emphasis on this, whatever, but then having the person who's spent so much time in studios with actors be able to be there and in some cases you just don't have the words to express the thing you're clearly trying to and yeah. they can help interpret is like super super valuable I'm but sure there's a great really deal we of skill <laughs> there's a great deal of skill involved in getting the performance you want right yeah yeah. yeah. anyway so, yeah. so I have an analogy to that that actually happened with me so on Braid when I was doing you know the programmer art version of the game and all that the sound effects were also they were downloaded from a website it was like a dollar a sound or right. something right and 
so in the same way that I tried to get uh, you know visual arts people to, to work with me, it took a great deal of effort to find people eventually. Yeah. Um, I also was trying to find audio people to work with. And I went through a couple of rounds of trying to work with audio people, and they would always make this stuff. And I would listen to it, and it sounded like generic casual game sound effects in, in terms of the feeling, right? Yeah. In terms of you know production skills, they were fine. They were better than the sound effects I had in there, but they, they were like missing the soul of the game, and they right. worked against the soul of the game, right? And so in the final shipping game, most of the sound effects or the majority of them at least, are the dollar sound effects that I picked off the website, like with some processing that a professional sound guy did. And then he made some additional sounds for some other things. But a lot of them are just these sounds. Because when I went off the website and picked from these cheap-ass bad sounds, I was at least picking according to that criterion that's hard to express about what fits with the soul of the game. And, And I ultimately came to that decision of, okay we're going to use these sounds and not these other sounds even though they're ostensibly poorer, right? But they fit better. They, they express better. the thing better. Yeah. They, they prevent the game from being jarring in a certain way. Yeah. And I don't know. You know, it's hard to say if players would even think that, but I thought it. I couldn't right. listen to those sounds. You know? Yeah. I mean, uh, something that, that I think is also true about having to do a lot of the implementation yourself basically, um, or having to manage a lot of the production of the stuff yourself and, and not just being able to say, I have this idea, will someone else please do it for me, um, is that it keeps you honest, right? Like, because myself being, like, the writer and level designer and, like, placing stuff in the level and having to actually script anything that was going to be scripted and so forth, it's like, you then... Any decision that you, any like creative decision you make, is through the lens of I'm going to have to do that. You yes. know? And, and yes. I think that leads to something that, in a lot of ways, will be more efficiently produced and a better expression of what you want to do than saying like, "Here's what I want to do." Hey, guy that works yeah. for me, please go do that. And if you tell me there's some problems with it, maybe I'll say, "Oh, okay. Well, maybe I'll change the idea, or maybe I'll say, eh, fight through the pain and figure it out.'" But like when you have to know how that idea is going to be input into the machine. Yeah. You know what, what it means to be making that. That is totally true. Like, I've worked with designers in some of those past jobs that, that didn't work that way. They just wrote the spec and said, do this, and it's a totally different experience, right? But there's other ways in which I think the creativity part gets better in this kind of scenario where you're doing a lot. So first of all, when you have the idea part of the idea... You know, there's always the broad stroke, and then there's like the subtle strokes of it, right? And yeah. the subtle strokes of what you start with, when you're aware of all the things that have to happen, will be aligned with those other things more likely, right? Yeah. Whereas if you start out with something that's kind of pointing the wrong direction, you have to have this process where you work with people to even discover that in the first place, because the programmer doesn't totally understand the idea, yeah. and you don't totally understand programming, and then you go do all that, and it's like, oh, this doesn't totally fit. Let's go revise it or whatever. And you have to go through maybe three or four iterations to get to where you would have been on the first iteration when you just do it, right? But then the other thing that I also have very direct experience with is even having the ideas in the first place, when when you are doing a lot of different roles... Um you will have ideas that you just wouldn't have had 
without that perspective. So on grade, you know, I was on vacation, I was programming Rewind, and then I started thinking, so so at first, like I said, the game wasn't going to be about Rewind. Rewind was like maybe one of the worlds, right? Yeah. And then I was like, oh, you know, I just programmed this thing that does Rewind, and the way it works is if you're holding down the key, then every frame, go over every object in the world and look up what its state was in the recorded state buffer and then copy it over and, you know, move the object, right? And that's Rewind. Well, here I'm iterating over every object in the world. What if it wasn't every object in the world, right? It was because I typed that code that I had that idea, right? Yeah. Um, And 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 the thing you're pointing at is that there were puzzles that were based around, like, the position of the key does not get Rewind or whatever. Yeah. Like that kind of thing. Yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm more speaking about the basic premise of each world, though, right? So, like, yeah. world two is just rewind in Braid. World three is there's rewind, but green glowy objects are not affected by rewind. And, and that's where that idea came from. And then right. world four is there's rewind, but it's tied to your position, right? Yeah. And when you when you wrote the code, you see what can naturally happen to it. And, right. and those ideas may not have come if I hadn't been the programmer, right? Definitely. Or they may have come out a lot differently. Yeah, come from a different place, or it may have been a much more roundabout way to arrive there. Yeah, but yeah I think it, absolutely. Like, there, there, there are tons of little things I can think about when I've worked on various projects where, like, being inside of how the game works gives you a perspective on what you might be able to do that the player will actually see. That, yeah, you, you only... Right. You only have the idea because, like, you're like, you know, in the case of something like what I've worked on, it's like, oh, we have, when you mouse over something, there's text that says what you can do, and I can change that on the fly. So maybe if, in this particular case, you read this thing, and you're reading it, and the character's reading it, and then she stops reading this note and closes it, so reads the script action and closes the note, and then we explain to the player what just happened, because now the prompt text is different. Because yeah. now it's my mouse over, and it's like she's saying she doesn't want to read that, and it's like this thing that I would not have had that idea if it wasn't like every little piece of that was something I had to use practically in other situations. Yeah. And in that case, the way you're explaining it, it's kind of evident that the idea is not exactly separate from the interface, right? It's right. not like an abstract idea about something to do in a game, and then let's figure out how to do it in Gone Home. It's right. like, well, here's how you move through the world, and here's what you see, and oh, we can do this with that, right? Yeah. And that's actually just dialing back to like the early days of being like a naive designer and just like like everybody thinks that they want to be a game designer right and everybody's got ideas for a game and all the ideas are high concepty and not connected to those concrete things right they're always like well what if there was a game where you were a dog living on Mars and yeah. you jumped over pits in the lower gravity and it was awesome like and that's, you know, whatever. Yeah. Obviously, that's not a real idea that anyone's had, but no. they're like that. And they don't, because they don't have that grounding in reality, they're usually not that good in the sense that they don't lead to a good game when you type them in. Because, yeah. because being good involves being really acutely aware of all those, of, of what is really happening, right? What is really happening in a game isn't, the fiction exactly it's the like here's a note and by the way if you flip it over you see the other side right yeah that's part of the interface and but 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 most notes don't have another side so it's it's surprising or interesting when you do right yeah right that kind of thing is where the magic moments of game design happen and 
you don't get that without being concrete, I think. Yeah. Yeah, which is different. I mean, you know, you can be concrete when you've got a very divided set of roles that, you know, everyone's doing, but I think it happens less. And especially tricky, magical things like that happen a lot less, right, in heavily segmented teams. Yeah. Because you just have to... Even doing a little thing like that, right? That's one of the memorable moments of the game. Um, it probably wasn't that hard to do unless you had some crazy bug messing it up, you know? Yeah, I, we, it used entirely existing functionality, except I never had a reason to need to force a note to close. So yes. I, I asked him, like, can you give me a script action that I can close the note as the designer? And he did it in 20 minutes. Yeah, 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 there you go. That would have taken meetings at Electronic Arts, right, <laughs> to discuss the possibility and, you know, it just, everything becomes heavier weight. Yeah. So, the, something that, that that strikes me is that, okay, A, I, I know more about The Witness than I think people in the public do. Cause, well, you like, saw that little thing that I showed. Stuff. Yeah, like, and, and, but that said, yeah. maybe in ways that are not super clear about the game yet I feel like a lot of what The Witness is about a lot of what you were inspired by or wanted to accomplish were those kind of whatever like mechanical interactive eureka moments that that come out of the like a a change in 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 how you relate to the world with the interactions you've seen and so on and so forth but not in a eureka puzzle solving way like Braid was a lot of times you're like oh I figured out how to solve that puzzle but more like that very those very small moments of changing your perspective on like how you can interact with the world or what it means or yeah I think that's true Um, but what's going on in The Witness I think of it as a continuation of what happened in Braid but well because you have some puzzles but there is there's, no, there's more of this world exploration and like other aspects of being in this space and relating to yeah. it. Yeah. So, so what happens in the witness though? So in Raid, there's a small number of, by small number, like seventy puzzles in the whole game, right? And they're very discreet, and some of them are easy because they're introductory or whatever. But a lot of them are really hard, and yeah. that's the meat of the game is having a really hard challenge, right? So for the witness, there's a lot more puzzles. Um, there's like discreet probably, puzzles inside of the world. Like you've shown the like the line drawing puzzles. And yeah, stuff yeah. Like so counting counting all of the things that I would consider puzzles, which I'm not even going to elaborate what that means. Um, there's probably 550 right now. So that's that's a, a different order of magnitude. First it's of a all, good specific right? number. To yeah, <laughs> probably about 550. It's actually a little. It's probably like 535. Okay, but, you know, all right. rounding up. All right. So what that lets you do. Well, there's a lot... What, what the structure of the game generally lets me do with the design is have there be a lot more of a flow to the puzzles and have the puzzles be more bite-sized individually. So it's not like 550 really hard puzzles that you strain to solve. There's, there's some of those in there. 5 to 10% of them are really hard. Another 5 to 10% are moderately hard. A lot of them are actually not hard at all. Over half, certainly, you probably can do without thinking that hard. But they're interesting, right? So just like, you know, in Braid, every puzzle has, like, a unique point. Like, nothing is repeated. You know, if one of the puzzles, the idea is, um, you know, you have to do something tricky with this elevator, right? you know, or, or whatever. I'm thinking of the one that's called Hunt, where it's like, that's... Yeah, 
Well, and that one comes back. That one exists in the game twice. There's a reprise of it, but the reprise is different, right? Because it uses different. Yeah, and so so each of those has a different idea, um, and so so the witness is like that too. Um, and what I found is that as long as you have that idea, the puzzle's interesting because people go, "Oh, I I get this," right? Yeah, it's like reading a book. Like reading a sentence in a book isn't hard usually, but you got an idea from it, right? Yeah. So, and you just read and you read, and as long as the story is interesting, you've had a a good time, right? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. so the witness is at one level doing something more like that, right? And so then, when you have these moments of epiphany, like I was stumped on something, and then now I see what's going on, and now I can solve it. Um, it's not just about the fact that there's a moment of epiphany, right? It's about what you realize, right? There's always a content to what you realize that doesn't repeat. But but sometimes it's really subtle and you don't even know what it is. Um, But you know there's something that you can like feel that there's something there. Like that, that really always comes through. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's in stark contrast to what happens in a lot of games. You know, like a lot of designers say... I want to make the player feel smart or, you know, I want to give people an aha moment. And, and that's fine, but I think it's the content of the aha moment that matters more than the fact of it, yeah. right? Because a generic aha moment is like every other generic one in every game, but if you can make content that's its own thing, then it's not. It's not like every other one in every other game. I feel like something that uh, is is interesting about you know where we are even having this discussion. And I think how you generally are talking to people publicly about this game, um, about the witness, is I feel like you haven't been able to say a lot of a lot of specifics about exactly what you're doing and what the player is going to encounter in the game. You've shown like beautiful looking environments and you know some specific puzzles and talked about some higher level stuff and I feel like that's been something that's been true of like for instance the Stanley Parable that came out recently and even like our game we didn't all we talked about was like the premise of the story and nothing about what happened after you actually started finding out what was going on and and it seems to be a thing that there's a little bit of like this this class of games that's now coming about where it's like it's hard to talk about before it's out for reasons that are different than than in some games where that, that sure. can also be true. So, do you feel like have you fe- have you have you felt some tension there, like about about how much you can share with people? Yeah, about this thing? fortunately, it's mostly resolved by now, right? But you know, as you've been saying, one of the jobs is the PR hat that you yeah. have to wear, right? And you have to make sure that. People know that you have a game, right? Right. That they think it's interesting and that they probably at least consider it something they would plausibly buy, yeah. right? If you can do those things, you're doing pretty good. Yeah. Um, early on, I didn't know how much of that was going to naturally happen, right? It's yeah. like, oh, here's this game where you walk up to LCD panels and trace on stuff and it looked butt ugly. It was like programmer art again. And you couldn't show screenshots and get people interested in it, right? Yeah. So, I mean, people were interested, but it was because I had a track record, like they liked yeah. the last game. That was the reason, right? Yeah. So, 
and that's not enough if you really want to do a good job of the wearing the PR hat, right? If yeah. you just ride on your own coattails, that's lame, right? Yeah. Well, especially, I mean, practically speaking, for the witness, you need a bigger audience than you had before. So you have to reach yes. out to people that haven't, maybe didn't play Braid or don't care that this game is by the guy who made Braid. That is right? absolutely so, true. Yeah. So, not a, you know, the, the whole point of the game is that you feel alone on this island. Yeah. It's like missed that way. Right. Where you show up and you're walking around and there's nobody else there and you're trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah. You run into some audio logs, Bioshock style, and you play those and there's at least one character, possibly two or three, talking at you from those. Yeah. It's in that very traditional at this point yeah. format. Um, and and that's that's most of what's going on. Okay. You know. So there's no, you know, no monster chomping. No monster chomping. <laughs> that would be a really good monster closet. You've played the game for 17 hours and nothing happened, and all of a sudden something jumps out. Yeah. The most the most valid version of a monster closet. A monster closet with purpose. <laughs> yeah. And drive okay, so wait, behind it. So you had asked... Uh, the difficulty of talking about the game without oh, yes. talking about a lot of it. Yeah, yeah so... Right, so... I knew going way back that... I would have to say something, but I really don't want to spoil the game. Yeah. I, now, a lot of things have changed since that original conception of how I would do PR. So first of all, you know, I brought the game to PAX in 2010, I think. Mm-hmm. Maybe, yeah, it was 2010. It was unlabeled, right? Nobody knew it was my game, and people played it, and I got to see how people would react to the game. And So you, um, so you just you just kind of... Sh- did you have a booth? I was I sharing the booth with my party in Monaco. Yeah. 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 So so you just kind of had a laptop and people could come check out this thing and it just right? I think it was a desktop machine, but yeah. But it was like a weird stealth. It was just and it was kind of over in the corner. <laughs> right. It was hard even to get to because like crowds from Monaco were in the way. Right. You know. So even though the game was hard to get to, a number of people played it. And I got to see how people interact with the game. And then Steven Totilo realized that it was my game or something. I, I forget how he figured it out, but yeah. so then, you know, he filmed it and posted that on Kotaku, and I got to see what some of the initial reactions were, right? Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, what we showed was the beginning where it's like, oh, you go and you do some of these panel puzzles on the side. It's like the most basic thing that you would see. Yeah. And, of course, you know, a lot of the forum reactions were like, oh, I, why would anyone play a game where you trace lines in maze puzzles or something, right? But then, right, I realized, okay, you you could have, like, thought this out, but, you know, you're often wrong and whatever, but but you see it, you see, okay, here's here's an initial presentation that just happened, I didn't plan it. Here's the reaction. Why would anyone want to trace maze puzzles? Well, there's a lot of good reasons, Um, but let me just pick one or two that don't spoil the game too badly. And that'll sort of be, like, any time that I do PR in the future, I'll make sure to cover that. So that that question is answered. So I knew, okay, I knew one of my missions, if I'm a good PR person, is to make sure that by the time this game is out, nobody's asking this question. People need to feel confident that the game is deep and interesting and isn't tracing some mazes that you would see in a magazine, right? right? So things like that 
happen over time, you know. So, like in 2011, then I did a press tour where I rented hotel rooms in some different cities, and I'd come up and or, or I'd, I'd sit the press down with the game, and I'd leave for two hours, or I'd leave for an hour and a half and just let them play yeah. programmer art game, you know. <laughs> but it was totally stable and it had the puzzles in and stuff, and so people could see on their own the progression. And because I'm not sitting there, I'm, first of all, I'm not demoing it, right? right? It's a hard game to demo. Like, I've, I've actually, since I've demoed it at E3, like this year, and people don't get it when you demo it, even though you explain it, because it has to work in your head for you to get it. And by you demoing it, you you're driving there. Like, I'm driving and yeah. there's a theater of people behind right. me. Like, that always is not as good as when people actually play it for themselves, yeah. right? So, so during this press tour, fortunately, people were actually playing it for themselves, I gave them an hour and a half slot with a game far from release, which is like unheard of, right? Like usually there's a handler and making sure you don't trigger the bugs and whatever. Right. Um, if there's a hands-on at all, which there usually isn't right. that early. Um, but then they also just, you know, felt good about being able to explore the game they wanted to rather yeah. than having a tightly controlled thing. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I learned a lot from that, like where the conversations went, right? I, I wouldn't try to control the conversation or whatever, but I'd give them an hour and a half of the game, and then we'd talk for 30, 45 minutes, and I would pay attention to the questions they asked and, and what they understood about the game and what they didn't, right? And that helps you refine the things that you have to say. So, you know, when you roll around to this year, um, I know how to talk about the game. Like, I've established a certain territory that I'm willing to spoil. Like, there's a few right. select puzzles. I have sort of this sequence that I just did at the, like, the PlayStation release party with some press where it's like... And, and in that one, again, I had to drive because it was short time slots, yeah. which is sad. Actually, people could play, but they won't get that far, right? right? But, you know, I would start driving, and I'd be like, okay, here's the beginning of the game, and then here's where it expands out to become more interesting. And there's three or four puzzles that we've spoiled you know in the press over the past couple of years and I just go I show those because usually people haven't seen those and um, and, th and then I say well and the game keeps going past that and by the way there's like 25 hours of single player content and you've seen one right yeah and that's usually enough to at least convince the the people that you're showing the game to that yes there's something here right yeah um, but you also like there's a great deal of stuff that I intentionally do not show and will not show because I want to keep those experiences for the players who encounter them for the first time. Yeah. yeah. We had an interesting experience uh, with doing early hands-on. So when we started working on Gone Home six months before IGF and we were like, okay, we need something that IGF judges can just download on their machine and hit play and have a good experience with. So, you know, basically it has to be a, a hands-on demo. So we used it for our hands-on press demo. We came down here to San Francisco and had a bunch of people come and play. And yeah, we did the same thing where it was like, we'll leave you in this room for like, I think we, we booked like hour-long slots and we just left you in the room for half an hour and just yeah. do whatever you want and then we'll come get you and we can talk about it afterwards. And yeah, A, that's good because much the same way, the only valuable thing about Gone Home is actually being the person who's interfacing with it like watching it over somebody's shoulder it looks you don't understand how that's not boring no no but but also too when someone's watching you over your shoulder then they it feel warps the play experience yeah, yeah exactly and we found we still found that was kind of true in a way because there are journalists who were trying to like get through as much as possible in the time frame so they right. don't want to write about but yeah. like still it's much better you do, you don't want to have them have the option of being like well what should I do next it's like well 
figuring out what to do next, like deciding what to do next is the game. So you know, so yes, I think not having that presence in the room is really valuable for them actually yeah. being able to experience it in a real way. But the additionally interesting thing to me is, you know, we we sent that that build to journalists, some of them like to their homes and we're just like use this, you know, like preview using this this demo build. And like it's the first hour of the game and spoilers uh, whatever. Uh uh, it includes content about Sam and Lonnie's relationship and it ends when they first kiss and 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 there were journalists who asked like is there, is there anything in this that you don't want us to talk about you know like specifics of the story and stuff I'm like I gave you guys anything in there is fair game like you can talk about anything that you encountered that's why we gave it to you in a really interesting way despite that nothing about the story got out yeah. Even in reviews, like reviewers didn't talk about it, and and the 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 most valid, like the one journalist specifically was like said to me, "I'm not going to write about any of the specifics of like their relationship and how it progresses because I found that to be really powerful to discover for myself, and I wouldn't want to be a player that didn't get to have that part of the experience." Long story short, I think that. I think that if you make something that is like inherently compelling and then you trust journalists to like encounter it and be the stewards of it, like they yeah. want people to have that, that good experience and I think you don't have to be too precious about like keeping them away from it in yeah, yeah. a heavy handed way. That'll be nice if that happens. <laughs> I know. We'll see. You get well, I mean you have a lot more game too. Like I mean that's something yeah. about like Braid was was probably you know, I don't know, you could if you were good at it, you could finish in uh, six, eight hours, maybe so. less than that. Yeah, four, I don't remember. Four, if it's been good. a while. Um, and yeah, you were saying this thing. You're finding that there are dozens of hours of content. Yeah, in. like I, I so thought, you know, when I originally started it, I was like, okay, this is going to be a bigger game than Braid. I think of Braid is four hours, so this will be eight to twelve. And right. in fact, it's it's somewhere between twenty five and forty. Yeah, which is which is. Crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. It also makes me feel better about taking so damn long to make it. <laughs> but it's fine because there's so much in there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, speaking of which, uh, I have taken up a lot of your afternoon and I really appreciate you sitting down and talking sure. to me. Um, sure. And I am, I'm sure, as everyone else, just uh, can't wait to see more of the witness when uh, when it's when, when it's done in the wild uh, <laughs> yeah. and get our hands on it ourselves. But uh, yeah, thanks again. Right on. Thanks for having me.